St. John unfolds the great mystery of the Incarnation using the masculine imagery of his time, which we interpret universally to be inclusive of all genders. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of that light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light this night we may see light, that in your truth revealed to us we may find freedom, and that in your will may we discover our peace and peace for your world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. As I did this last Sunday, I turn again to the reading my wife and I have been recently doing of the scriptures one chapter at a time each evening. What strikes me about our fresh, unscholared reading of the King James Version is how in the earliest days of the creation of humanity, God is committed to to making sure that the human race survives despite our habitually misguided attempts to wrest power from God himself. The first man and first woman seek to acquire knowledge reserved only for God as they partake from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God responds by, among other things, instituting the pain of labor both in childbearing and in tilling the soil, while still reissuing his call that the human race be fruitful and multiply, a command God repeats four times 
in Genesis. When their offspring Cain kills his brothers Abel in an argument over whose offering before God is superior, God banishes Cain to the land of Nod, east of Eden. God then places a mark on Cain's forehead, not so that Cain will be forever branded with a scarlet M, but so that no one will come upon him and take his life. In an action that we can only call merciful, an action that lies beyond what we human beings would normally be willing to extend to someone who had killed his brother, God protects Cain from the fate that Cain has inflicted upon his brother. A few chapters later, Abraham, now pushing 86, is 11 years into the promise of an offspring that has still not been produced with his wife, Sarah. Abraham takes to heart Sarah's suggestion that he father a child by her Egyptian servant, Hagar. The narrator of Genesis fills more parchment pages covering the early life and fate of the half-foreign child born to that union and his mother than the narrator later spends describing the birth and early life of Isaac, the heir. Ishmael shall be a great nation, God says, though Isaac shall be the heir. God's commitment extends to the entirety of the human race, not simply the people of Israel God has called to be his own through Abraham and Sarah. In the fits and starts of human faithfulness and unfaithfulness, Noble aspiration and ignoble cowardice. Reaching toward God and fleeing from God. More often than not, it is God who takes the steps to ensure that humanity survive into the future. It is God who places us in a position to inherit and claim the promises that God has given us. And it is God who equips us to respond to those promises by being fruitful and multiplying, by spreading out over the face of the earth, by exercising dominion over all of creation with the work of our hands and minds, and by serving as a catalyst to pass God's blessing on to all people and all nations, generation to generation. As theologically challenging as God's actions toward the human race appear at times with the violence God seems to condone and the suffering God seems to not intervene and end the overall witness of scripture represents a long standing and never ending commitment on the part of God to human flourishing flourishing under the sun that rises above our heads every day and the stars that illumine the night sky and serve as our points of aspiration and our tools of navigation. This is the God who emerges from a reading of the 39 chapters of the Old Testament. That's your lesson for tonight. 
Now, this short background is what leads us to this night. The night in which God continues his unfailing commitment to the human race and to the entire created order in which we reside. A commitment that we be redeemed. That the pain and injustice we experience in this world and in our lives be rectified. And that we be restored to reflect the beauty that God has bestowed upon us as created in His image. And that we exercise the honored responsibility with which God has charged us to be bearers of that image in the world. God's commitment culminates in His holy and undivided self, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, becoming flesh and dwelling among us, pitching His tent among us, living among us, full of grace and truth in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. This fullness of grace and truth extends from Christ's pre-existence as Word with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To His final Word on the cross, it is finished. To His gift of the Holy Spirit to us, as counselor, as comforter, as advocate, as witness to His promised return in glory when God will make all things new and God will wipe away all tears from our eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. Christ's preexistence with God is word his birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His gift of the Spirit, His ascension and His promised return are all part of what theologian Fleming Rutledge calls God's new creative act, God's reclamation project that is even greater than creation itself. Because whereas we are wonderfully created, we are yet more wonderfully restored. This is what we celebrate tonight. Now, restoration is something that I have been sensing and feeling almost every day at Westminster this fall. As we have finally emerged from COVID probably about as much as we ever are going to. I felt restoration. The first Sunday of our full schedule in September, when as some of you who follow Facebook know or saw, not that I posted it, but that I laid out my clothes for church the night before like a child anticipating going to the first grade for the first time. I was so excited. I was so excited. I felt it nearly every time I've seen one of you for the first time in a long time coming into the sanctuary back from COVID. An experience of reunion 
and hopefully of me remembering your name, that continues to happen as people long away come back to a worship service, some of which has happened this day, tonight. I felt in the, in the tremendous stewardship challenge that you've accepted as a congregation to invest in the future of our church with our current staff so that we can live into this future post-COVID and the results we are receiving, the commitment you're showing so far. I felt it a few weeks ago in a, an energetic, almost raucous meeting at a home on a Friday morning with several families who were fired up about their discovery and involvement in Westminster and who peppered me with questions about what I think about heaven and what I think about hell and everything in between. More conversations to follow. I felt it when a 12-year-old boy whose parents I have known at Westminster since long before his and his twin sister's birth played a postlude on the organ during one of our services this fall, 12 years old. And he was not deterred when the organ sort of belched as it got started. He played right on. I felt it in the baptisms of infants we have been able to reinstitute in this chancel. In an adult baptism we had last week, special in the Presbyterian Church because it's so infrequent. And I felt it as I've witnessed many of you make hard decisions in your vocations, in your marriages, in your immediate and extended families in your rearing of your children or youth or in your being children or youth. I've seen it in the decisions that come, some of you have had to make which sometimes involve welcome, sometimes involve extending support or rescue, and sometimes involve the setting of boundaries a gentle but firm no that always involves courage and discernment and a difficult commitment to the long-term well-being of someone we love. And I have felt it as we have all witnessed people around the world standing up with courage and heroism for the freedom and equality and dignity and self-governance that we express in our ideals. Women in Iran, protesters in China, citizens and soldiers in Ukraine capped by the courage of their president, one of the most heroic public figures in recent memory. Through all this, I have felt God's reclamation project at work. The word become flesh dwelling among us. At a recent Sunday morning service, a member of the church who from previous conversations I know 
struggles with the state of the world in the way that many of us do, stopped suddenly as he was going quickly into worship right out here to catch up with his family. And he pivoted toward me as I stood down the hall greeting people. It was the first time I'd seen him in six months other than to wave across the sanctuary on the first Sunday that he came back from his home in the woods in New England, which he had built with his hands and which his family lives in about half of the year. As he stopped and pivoted, he told me he had just come back from Colorado with several men who before COVID had gathered every year to hunt and fish and camp and explore the mountains. One of their number has developed memory issues and they wanted to take him back to the mountains when he could still experience it and perhaps even recall it. We were driving through Wolf Creek Pass, this member said, 11,000 feet in altitude. From the highway, we saw something I had never seen before. It was a tight, funnel-shaped cloud of fog moving slowly up and down and then moving ever so slowly across the mountain. As we moved toward it, it would expand and contract, expand and contract. When we got closer, we at first thought it was the frozen breath of a herd of cattle. But when we got within a hundred yards, we realized that it was a herd of elk breathing in, breathing out, expanding, contracting. It was absolutely beautiful, he said. And then he got his bulletin and went into worship. Now, what would prompt a person to stop suddenly, almost dead in his tracks, and share with the first minister he could find his experience of a sight on a mountain for the first time, even though he had spent decades of his life in the mountains, what would make him suddenly remember that experience as he was racing to catch up with his family and enter the sanctuary in which he worships? We beheld his glory, says John. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Was it a sense of glory that he and his friends had beheld that led this man to anticipate glory as he entered the sanctuary where he worships and to turn and share the story of that glory with the first minister he saw. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, glory, grace and truth. 